Okay, so we're going to do a real quick review of what we did last week. And when I say real quick, I mean very, very quick. Uh, we'll only spend just a minute or two on that. We looked at the first three chapters. Tonight we're going to look at chapters four, five, and six. In chapter one, we were introduced to the King Xerxes or Ahasuerus. And we said that at the heart of who he was was boastful, arrogant pride. We're actually going to talk a little bit more about pride tonight, but this time it's not so much the pride of Ahasuerus that we're going to talk about. It's the pride of the villain, Haman, that we're going to talk about uh, a little bit tonight. Chapter 2 is where Vashti had been deposed. She had been removed from the scene, and Esther, uh, or Hadassah, depending on if you're looking at the Hebrew or the Persian name, uh, Esther is chosen as the new queen, and that then brought Mordecai to the scene because you remember that both Mordecai and Esther, who were Jews, were secret Jews, although we quickly see that their uh, secrecy is unveiled and that they are then known as Jews, which brings us to chapter 4 uh, tonight, chapters 3 and 4. And then chapter 3 is where Haman plans revenge not only on Mordecai, but also on all of the Jewish people. To annihilate them all, and he gets the king's blessing that that could happen. So that brings us to chapter 4, and uh, we're going to spend a few minutes on chapter 4. And I've entitled this particular part of our study, Mordecai's Plan. So we know that Haman has a plan. We talked about that in the last 10 or 12 minutes of last week's class. But let's spend a few moments talking about Mordecai's plan now. Let's look at chapter 4, and I want to read the first three or four verses here of chapter 4, where it says that Mordecai, when he had learned all that had happened, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. He cried out with a loud and bitter cry. Remember that scene of him being sad, uh, sullen, and upset over the state of affairs. Because that's going to come back, and we're going to see a repeat of that. But rather than Mordecai's mourning, we're going to see uh, Haman acting in a very similar way later in the text. He went as far as the front of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. Remember that the king has to be uh, presented with happiness uh, and good times and no sadness before him. And Jonathan will talk about that a little bit when uh, Nehemiah appears upset and the king says, why are you so upset? Verse 3, in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was a great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So Esther's maids and Eunice came and told her, and the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai and take his sackcloth away from him, but he would not accept it. So let's kind of go through here and think about what's happened in the first four verses, where you have Mordecai mourning, and Vashti now comes on the scene. She now hears about it, and the Bible says there in verse 4 that she was greatly distressed. And so more information is needed in order for Vashti to not only act, but to know uh, what's happening. So to give her more information, the next five, six, seven, eight, nine, the next five verses kind of detail that. 
by delivering devastating news of, uh, of what's going to happen. Notice verse 6, where it says that Hatak went out to Mordecai in the city square. She's one of the king's, or I'm sorry, he's one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend to her. I thought this was kind of an interesting aside to the study of Esther. Esther is about these big characters. Esther's a big character. Haman's a big character. Ahasuerus is a big character. And Mordecai is a big character. Those are probably the four most major uh, characters in the study of Esther. But think about it from this perspective. Here's Hatak, who gets a mention or two in the book of Esther. And consider, if you would, the importance of all the little-known servants in the Bible. Uh, just maybe five weeks ago, uh, in his invitation talk, John Grimmett talked about one of the little-known characters in Paul's letter to Timothy. You have uh, Onesiphorus, and you have Onesimus, and you have um, all these individuals that appear both in the Old and New Testaments that just kind of get a real quick mention. Some of them never get named. Some of them are men, some of them are women, but they play this huge role. And it reminds me of passages like Romans chapter 12, verses 4, 5, and 6, where, among other places, Paul uses one of his favorite analogies of the body and members, where everybody plays a role. Everybody has an important role to play. And even if people don't see the good that you are doing, uh, the, the good that you are doing is, is valuable. So I just thought that was kind of interesting to think about Haytag in, in that lens. Let's drop down to verse uh, uh, 10, where it says that Esther spoke to Haytag and gave him a command for Mordecai. She says, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces Know that any man or woman who goes into the inner courts of the king who has not been called, he has but one law, put all to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called to go into the king these 30 days. So they told Mordecai Esther's words. So Esther here responds to Mordecai. So it's interesting that Hatak is playing this go-between role. So uh, the women are separated from the men. The men are separated from the women. And it seems as if, well, there's a period of time that's gone by where Esther has not been in the king's presence. And so uh, there's some thought as to whether or not uh, they were getting along. It doesn't matter whether they were or not. The fact is, is she's going to go and make this plea to the king. And she says, the law says that if he, I go in there and the scepter doesn't come down to say you are accepted and that you are pleasing to me, I'm happy to see you. It's off with my head or some other form of very evil uh, death that would occur to me. So remember two things that we, we I just highlighted a minute or so ago, we talked about last week, is that ancient kings were not to be interrupted. That's probably true with modern leaders today, whether that be in politics or whether that be um, in business. And delivering bad news was a dangerous thing to do. Back then, we, we sometimes say, don't kill me, don't kill the messenger, I'm just the messenger. Back then, they would kill the messenger. So 
you, you don't want to be the messenger, even if it's not. So you couldn't say, but don't kill me. Because then the king says, I will kill you because I'm that upset. And he has that kind of power. So um, let's go then to verses 13 and 14. Uh, and verse 13, Mordecai told them to answer Esther. So they're going back and forth. Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. So he's very matter-of-fact about it. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise from the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Now, if there are certain passages in the Bible you like underlining, if you want to prick your finger and put a drop of blood by it, this would be a verse to, to put a drop of blood by and a star by. Because this is kind of the quintessential verse of providence or recognition that God works in mysterious ways. We sometimes use that phrase. Look at the latter half of verse 14. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So Mordecai responds to Esther and suggests that providence may be at work. And we can talk a lot about our own lives, how God has where it seems as if, and we never know for sure, do we, whether or not God is orchestrating events in our lives. But we know that God does make things happen for his purposes. We know that all things are subject to his will. We know that even leaders that are around, Jesus himself said to Pilate, he says, you would not be in power if the one who was in true power wasn't responsible for it in the first place. So there's all this um, behind the veil action on the part of God. And I just love verse 14, the second part of verse 14, where it says, who knows? Maybe you are here for that purpose. And then let's notice Esther responding with what I would call emphatic, to the point um, words in verses 15 through 17. She says in verse 16, Go gather all the Jews who are present in Susan and fast for me, neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise, and so I will go to the king, which is against the law. So she knew it's against the law. She knew that she was risking her life here. And if I perish, I perish. That kind of thinking, it sounds very Pauline to me. When you think about the way Paul wrote and the way that he conducted himself and he went before uh, kings or governors and basically said, I'm going to tell the truth. And if it gets me in trouble, it gets me in trouble. Remember the apostles in Acts 5 when they said, you can tell us all you want not to preach, but we're going to preach. We're going to do what God has asked us to do. So Mordecai went his way, did according to all that Esther commanded him. Interesting to note here that uh, proclaiming a fast among the Jews, we won't take the time to read, but uh, when we studied Ezra chapter 8, verses 21, 22, 23, there was a, a fast that was proclaimed there. We know that in New Testament times, fasting was done. Uh, we don't talk a lot about fasting today for a couple of reasons. One, because we live in New Testament times. That being said, um, are there New Testament Christians who fast from time to time for spiritual reasons? And the answer is yes. 
And we know that because of conversations that we've had with other Christians, I think one of the reasons why we are maybe apt not to talk about it too much is because we're trying to honor the spirit of Matthew 6 and not blow a trumpet before our good deeds. And I think there's something to be said for that. So we don't uh, go around saying, look at me, I'm fasting. Um, I'm here to tell you tonight that I'm not fasting. <laughs> based, based on what I had for supper. <laughs> okay. Uh, here's another interesting thing that I had never noticed before, is that is note that Esther's maids or Esther's helpers fasted as well. Think about that for just a second. Who were her aides? It may have been fellow Jews, but it likely would have been Gentiles. So here is yet another kind of glimpse of the Old Testament. Look at Old Testament glimpses of New Testament principles. And this is one of those that just strikes me that, huh, God is here using people who potentially are not in his acceptable fold to be of comfort and aid to one of his chosen individuals. Last week we talked about Rahab as kind of the, uh, as a big example of a non-Jew being a heroine of faith. And then to get to one of our applications that we'll close with tonight, but just already to think about it, is troubles, difficulties, sometimes promote some of the greatest opportunities for spiritual renewal uh, or just a greater sense of spiritualness. And that's what's happening here. These people were fasting. And one of the things in fasting, and you know, I've got to admit, I've never, I, I, I have preached on fasting before. And one of the points that we make, especially with the principle of New Testament fasting, is that by fasting, and removing something that is important in one's life, you are able to then insert in place of that time period something that is more important, prayer, study, meditation. Um, that would not have happened here in the latter part of Esther 4 if these bad things had not have transpired. So sometimes bad things, troubling things, difficult things, lend themselves to opportunities for real spiritual growth. And I thought that was kind of interesting to, to know. Okay, let's go ahead and transition to chapter 5. Chapter 5 is equally brief. It's only 14 verses. Uh, one of the interesting things about the way that Esther is organized is that most of the chapters, with the exception of the ninth chapter, are relatively uh, brief, including the 10th chapter, which has only a handful of verses to it. But let's look at chapter 5, the beginning of Haman's end. Haman is going to be alive at the beginning of chapter 5. He'll be alive at the end of chapter 5. But we begin to see the underlinings of things that are going to fall apart for Haman. Because as we already know, again, spoiler alert, Haman doesn't come out real well at the end of Esther. Even though he was going to be the guy that was going to be almost a king-like Person. Some have wondered whether or not he was really uh, angling for the throne in the first place. All right. Esther Acts. Let's look at verses 1 through 5. We'll just kind of breeze through and look at a couple of things here. She goes to the king. Verse 2. Uh, the king held out to Esther the gold scepter that was in his hand. She went near and touched it. And he says, what do you wish? What is your request? 
it'll be given to you up to half the kingdom, which is a, um, seems to be an old cultural way of saying, I'll give you what you want. Uh, in the New Testament, do you remember someone who made that uh, statement? Remember uh, when uh, Herod uh, was approached by Herodias, by the that, what do you want up to half the kingdom? Verse 4, Esther says, If it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to the banquet that I have prepared for him. One of the things that we said last week is that the book of Esther is a book of banquets and feasting and people getting together. These people love to eat. They love to have a celebration. They love to have a cause to get together and to feast. And so the king said, Bring Haman quickly that he may do as Esther has said. So the king and Haman went to the banquet that Esther had prepared. So Esther acts. Um, this is one of those things that it's a very New Testament-y concept, but it's also an Old Testament one as well. And that is faith and works go together. James chapter 2 is kind of the quintessential passage that talks about the importance that a man is not justified by faith only, James 2.24. And so here you have Esther believing that there was a problem, but be willing to match that with her action uh, and to act appropriately. And then the other thing that I thought was kind of interesting to point out here in the first couple of verses is that she doesn't go to the king and say, when he says, what do you want? We've got this problem, king. She says, let me have a banquet for you. And there's probably some um, subtitles to that that we could get into that we don't have the time for. But it is interesting. She does not immediately choose to inform the king of her request. All right. If you are Haman, how are you feeling now? So Haman the villain, how are you feeling now? Even if you haven't read between the next three, four verses, feel pretty good about this. This is, I could, I mean, I, it's like, given to me on a silver platter, no pun intended, to Herod and uh, John the Baptist, right? But this, is, this is easy. This is making things so easy for me. And so Haman grows more confident. Verses 6 through 9, I want to read those verses here. The banquet of the wine, the king said to Esther, what is your petition? She says, is it going to be granted to you? What is your request? Esther says, my petition is this. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition, to fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the banquet which I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Again, she says, I'm not going to tell you. Now, there may be a danger there because the king could be getting a little bit impatient. What are you wasting my time for? I've already asked you once. You invited me to the banquet. Now you say, what do you want? Under my banquet tomorrow. Although the king is probably thinking, <laughs> I've never turned down a banquet before. I'm not going to start now. <laughs> and Haman says, this is great. In fact, notice verse 9 where it says that Haman went away joyful, the new King James says, with a glad heart. And everything was going great until verse 9, part B, he saw. Ooh, Mordecai. I don't like that. Mordecai in the king's gate. He did not stand or tremble before him. He was filled with indignation against Mordecai. So 
if, if you don't believe that God is at work, and one of the things that we haven't said, and I, I kind of waited until halfway into our study of Esther, now that we're at the halfway point, is that Esther is one of two books in the Old Testament that does not mention what by name. Doesn't mention God, right? But God is clearly in control because there are yet more and more proofs that God is working this thing together. And Haman thinks that he's in charge. He thinks that he's driving the ship right now. Or driving the car. I don't know if you drive the ship. But he, he's the one in control. He's the one who's making this happen. All right. So let's then fast forward a little bit to one of our big takeaways from Ahasuerus and from Haman. And that is selfishness and pride. Proverbs 16 verse 18 talks about pride going before a fall. Talks about the idea of allowing ourselves to be haughty in the way that we think. And in verse uh, 12, Haman said, Besides, Queen Esther invited no one but me to come in with the king to the banquet that she prepared. And tomorrow I am again invited by her along with the king. So Haman, he's, he's feeling good now. He's picking out his outfit. He's doing his hair. He's making sure everything's good. He's like, this is great. Because this is what's going on in his mind. And that then brings us to the final verses. And uh, that's malice in the palace. And verses 13 and 14. Yet all this avails me nothing so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the gate. Verse 14 is long. Let's read all of verse 14. His wife, Zeresh. Rarely are wives mentioned in the Old Testament, but Zeresh is mentioned. Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows be made, fifty cubits high, and in the morning suggest to the king that Mordecai be hanged on it. Go merrily with the king to the banquet, and the thing pleased Haman, so he had the gallows made. I mean, there's just so much in that verse. I mean, you have the juxtaposition of... Uh, uh, Haman saying, I'm going to kill this man by building a gallows 75 feet tall or so. And then you have him merrily going along uh, to sit down with the king and drink. I mean, it's just talk about debauchery. Talk about people who have gone further than they may have ever imagined. Because that's what sin does. We talked about that last week as well. That sin does an awful lot of bad stuff. So Haman can't find joy. Uh, while Mordecai is still around. And then consider, if you would, the character of Zeresh. Um, Proverbs 31, verse 10. Who can find a virtuous wife? i tell you who, who, who didn't find one. <laughs> Haman. I mean, Haman found the opposite of Proverbs 31, verse 10, through the end of the chapter. Um, it reminds me of the story of, uh, of a Christian female uh, trying to attract other Christians as a potential mate. So she just had a t-shirt made and it just said Proverbs 31 on it. She's walked around Proverbs 31. <laughs> so, you know, I suppose that's, that's, that's pretty good. You know, that's good. But uh, I don't know if she ever found it. She may still be walking around. I don't know. All the guys are confused. What's Proverbs 31? But someone's looking at uh, Okay, but she was not Proverbs 31 material, was she? And she's a bad influence. And evil company corrupts good habits like we talked about 
last week. All right, let's spend uh, a few moments then in chapter 6, and that is the honor to Mordecai. So Haman goes to sleep feeling really good, and then chapter 6, someone doesn't sleep very well. I wonder why. And things begin to take a turn for the worse very quickly. All right. Uh, again, God is working. He works through his providence, and that's seen in the sleepless night of King Xerxes or King Ahasuerus. That night, the king could not sleep. So one was commanded to bring the book of the records of the Chronicles. Someone pointed out, that'll put you to sleep. But apparently, uh, that was something that he... And someone, I, I, thought, I never thought about this until uh, I was preparing for this. The king could have called for dancers. He could have called for uh, a celebration. He could have said, let's have a feast in the middle of the night. He could have done a bunch of things. But he said, someone bring me the Chronicles and read them to me. I'm too important to read myself, but you read them to me. And so they read. And it just so happens, of course it doesn't just happen, right? Where do they open to? They open to the story of Mordecai. And here are named the two individuals who were the conspirators back in chapters 1, 2, and 3, Big Thana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs. And they had tried to assassinate him years earlier. And so he says, what honor has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And they looked in the Chronicles and they said, nothing. <laughs> this man saved my life. We've done nothing. We didn't even give him a plaque. Let's do something for him. So the king says, who's in the court right now? I've got an important message to deliver. And even without reading, we already know who's going to be in the court. Haman's going to be there. And they say, go get him. So the king and Haman went to the... Uh, wrong chapter. So Haman was just entering the outer court of the king's palace to suggest that the king hang Mordecai. Timing is impeccable. Haman is there, standing in the court. The king said, let him come in. So let's just detail this a little bit. The topic of the Chronicles was an accidental. Haman's arrival in the palace, I'm submitting, was not accidental as well. These are purposeful things where God is making this happen. This is why every other breath in the story of Esther is where we talk about God providing or the idea of providence. And it gets better. Or worse, if you're Haman. But it gets better if you're reading the story like we are. Haman came in. The king asked him, Haman, verse 6, what shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? Haman says, I've been waiting for you to ask that all week. <laughs> he says, well, Haman thought, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Haman answered the king, said, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let a royal robe be brought which the king has worn, a horse in which the king has ridden, a royal crest placed on his head. Let the robe and the horse be delivered in the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, that he may array the man whom the king delights to honor, then parade him on horseback throughout the city square, and proclaim before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. So Haman thinks, of course, that he's going to be rewarded. He thinks that things are going to turn out very well for him. Uh, incidentally, this proves, again, if we haven't already gotten that message, 
that Haman thinks a lot of himself. Um, he, he, Haman loves the mirror. It's his favorite object in his house. And he stares at it all day long, it seems to me. Uh, it reminded me of Proverbs 29, 23. A man's pride will bring him low, but the humble in spirit will retain honor. So it's still at this point that Haman doesn't know that something is awry in his plan. That brings us to the final five verses of the chapter. The king said to Haman, verse 10, hurry, take the robe, take the horse, as you have suggested, and do so for Mordecai the Jew, who sits within the king's gate. Leave nothing undone of all that you have spoken. I love the fact that he says, you suggested it, you spoke it, it was your idea. I commend you for what a, what a wonderful idea. I'll, I'll give you a bronze plaque next week, but we're going to give this man a parade around the city. And the Holy Spirit, for whatever reason, just simply says that Haman went and did it. Um, I w- there are certain moments of biblical history that I wish were on tape and wish we could watch a person's body language, their eyes, or the way that they conduct themselves. Some, some are a little bit humorous. Some are just downright sad and despicable. And they're, you know, what, if we, what if we were able to see Jesus' face when Peter denied him three times. I mean, that wouldn't be pleasant to watch. But can you imagine? Here's one of those moments, though, that's a little bit different, where Haman is just absolutely humiliated. And there is this incredible reversal of roles. And remember how Mordecai had started the story tonight by being in ashes and sackcloth and so sad. Now look what happens here. Afterward, Mordecai went back to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. Verse 12. The very people to whom he had turned for advice now were failing to comfort him. When Haman told his wife Zeresh and all the friends everything that had happened to him, his wise men and his friend and his wife Zeresh said to him, they didn't say, bless your heart, you poor little thing. They said, if Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. Thanks for making me feel great. I mean, again, this is the antitype of Proverbs 31. Kind of a woman here. Uh, granted, she's speaking truth, <laughs> but she's not encouraging her husband very much on this particular occasion. So one of the things that kind of jumps out to me is be careful who you allow your counselors to be. Um, I'm reminded of last week we talked about everybody else is doing it. Everybody's doing it. And most parents have dealt, especially if your kids get a little bit older, uh, teenage years and uh, you know, my friends are doing it. Everybody's doing it. I want to do it as well. I want to go there. I want to do that activity, whatever the case may be. And I'm reminded of a Christian family 
where one of the children went to her parents and said, well, I went to someone else, and they said it would be okay, somebody else's parents. And the parent asked the responsible question, well, who, who were these people? And the next question was, were they Christians? And granted, Christians can give bad advice, too. We, we're, we're, we can make mistakes, too. But if you're getting your advice from people of the world, void of spiritual depth and biblical study, take that advice with caution. And that's one of the things that kind of jumps out to me here. All right. We ended last week with three takeaways. We'll do the same thing now. And we've already talked about these a little bit. One is that trials or difficulties can make us stronger or can make us weaker. That's true when it comes to your personal relationship with others. It's true when it comes to a marriage. It's true when it comes to uh, interpersonal relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ. Here was a situation, particularly I'm looking at Esther chapter 4, where things looked very bad. And rather than giving up, Esther says, you know what, I'm going to act. I'm going to do what's right. And if I perish, she says, I perish. Secondly, pride is at the center of sin and always produces devastation in a person's life. I was talking about this today with someone, that you can make the argument that there's no such thing as a sin wherein pride isn't a part of the sin in some way. It may be selfish pride, it may be pride for not admitting you're wrong. But the other interesting thing is at the center of pride is the letter I, and at the center of sin is the letter I. I understand that's coincidental because it's the English language, but I, me, self, selfishness is at the center of who we are as sinful people. And then thirdly and finally, God is always in absolute control We've got to trust him. I want to close with Psalm 33, verses 10 and 11. Uh, I had never thought about Psalm 33 in this light before. But in thinking about all the evidence, because there's plenty of evidence that God is in control and he's making things happen in his time, as we sometimes say. Verses 10 and 11. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. And I just thought that was kind of interesting, that God's in control. That's what that passage is, is saying. That's what the psalmist seems to be getting at, especially in verse 12, when he, the, the verse that we typically quote from Psalm 33, which is, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord and the people he's chosen for his own inheritance. So those are the things I wanted to talk about tonight. Lord willing, next week we'll deal with chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10, and that should be a doable task because uh, even though 9 is very lengthy, 10 is very short, so we'll be able to make it through our study, Lord willing, next week. Thank